Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limits with Christopher Luca, Seven Investing Production. Uh, it's you catch me early in the morning. I've only just made my coffee, and I've literally Christoph saw me make my bed behind me as I was starting the video. Are you going? Uh, yeah, rolling straight out of bed into the podcast realm, Luke. Out of boy, out of way to get him. <laughs> You're uh, much more productive. You've been out for a run in the freezing cold together. Yeah, I was up at 6 a.m., did my meditation thing, did my run, did my walk in the in the cold with my dog, Bunk, and <laughs> but I declined the cold shower invitation this morning. My hands were so frozen that I was like, nope, <laughs> none of that. Now I'm mind. all, uh, did, some, uh, did some reading, and now I'm all geared up and excited to talk to you. I've been bottling up so much refraining from from word vomiting on you on our internal uh, slack channel because as you know i lost my las vegas virginity oh yes of course you did yeah this was a gift from my my beloved new wife first not, new, not my first <laughs> and and beloved new wife like not your Vegas wife that you met. Not, right, right. <laughs> and uh, it, it's kind of astounding that I had never been to Vegas given, you know, all my proclivities. And I wanted to kind of ramble about it a little bit because it's a, it's a thing. It's like there are things, experiences to be had there. And I want to say that I, I would argue that because of my spiritual practice, I'm not, I wasn't going to fall into the ditch of falling for the shiny things, you know, and losing my way in that regard. But I was worried that, you know, the, I don't know, the fakeness of it would make me queasy. But I think I got over that, like, within the first day. I, meaning, I kind of saw it for what it is, and, you know, I didn't fall into that ditch. And then as soon as that happened, I had just the best time, you know, figuring out how it works, walking through all the weird tunnels, and in some places, like the Venetian, you know, looking up at the postmodern replica and how fake it is, and yet I'm like, well, if you're going to make a mall, high-end mall, why not have gondolas in the middle of it, right? Like, why not have, like, you know, like the excess kind of started to, to charm me, and... The whole time as I was walking around, I was thinking about the difference between a gambler's mindset and an investor's mindset in this world. Money as this classless, statusless thing that just makes the entire Vegas operation go. Like, it doesn't matter how you have your money. No one asks, right? And there are all these different ways to make it but it doesn't represent anything beyond itself. Uh, what were your highlights and lowlights of the, of the trip? And did you play any poker? Yes, I played, uh, I played in four different poker rooms. And my, my beloved wife is a complete noob. And I was trying to school her as much as possible. But she was brave enough to join me on, at the poker tables. And she mostly held her own. There were some, some blunders were made. Uh, <laughs> but I was really, really, really proud of her. First day, oh man, the way I got rivered just nearly broke my heart. <laughs> you know, like that, that it was an all in situation. I had all my chips in with the best hand, which, you know, if you know the, the, the theory of poker, when, when, you know, your opponent could see what your cards were and you know what your opponent's card cards are, if you would do the same thing 
an infinite amount of time, that's how you know you, you were correct. If you would change your decision based on knowing what the cards are, you were on the lower end of the, the bargain. And so anyway, that first day I got rivered so in such a uh, uh, heartbreaking fashion uh, that, you know, it was like that reminder <laughs> of, of the cruelty of the, of the enterprise. But I more than made up for it the next three days. Right, and that, yeah. that is that's a good investing lesson there as well, right? You're, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes short-term luck can make a good decision, uh, you know, have a bad outcome. But it doesn't mean the decision was wrong just it was a, an unlucky outcome that time you'd still do that same thing a hundred times over exactly yeah that's such an important investing lesson short-term swings could happen for any number of reasons they're not in our control what is in control is can you get back on the horse can you stay focused can you avoid the cool trust your skill set get back at it and yeah it ended up uh the poker stuff ended up very well for me by trip's end the other thing I wanted to to mention is the shows. Of course, Vegas is known for shows, but you know, until you go, I, I don't know, it's like hearsay and whatnot, but uh, my lady took me to a Cirque du Soleil called Ka. Yeah, I've seen that twice, actually. That's great. Oh, did you? That stage. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that platform that rises yeah. and shifts. It was just so astounding. So astounding watching artists at the peak of their powers and, you know, the, the joy of humans and what we could create. When we... I mean, just for anyone who hasn't seen it, like the stage itself, the set is incredible. It's like this articulated stage that flips up, turns upside down, rolls on its side, and then the actors are just kind of rolling with it. It's like seeing The Matrix in real life almost. It's pretty insane. And it's the kind of thing you could never do kind of anywhere outside Vegas, really, I suppose. Because um, you've got this thing running for you know years and years to, well, investing less than right. They've got to recover their capex on this enormous piece of infrastructure, uh, which I'm sure they've done many times over. Yeah, that's one of the things I left the show with thinking the outside of some of the spectacular acrobats. The stage itself felt like the main character and yeah. the ingenuity... And like you were saying, the capex to build this thing, you know, it was just yeah. truly astounding. <laughs> but the other highlight, the other highlight I have you to blame for. <laughs> you went to absinthe. <laughs> I went to absinthe and, and I went in cold because that's my preferred style. Try to know as little as possible. The only thing I caught, I caught the word ribald or body. You know, I was like, okay, yeah, right, right on. And then, oh, did that, was it, was it body? I don't know how many, how often they change the shows, but they did not spare uh, anyone's feelings. No spoilers, I suppose, but it's kind of, it is kind of sexy. It's fun. It's incredible, you know, acrobatics and incredible skill. And it's quite an emotional little, you know, sort of th vague thread that runs through the whole thing. But really, you're seeing like lots of very, very like world-class circus acts, kind of, uh, you know, put together on the same very, very intimate, tiny stage. Yeah, and in the vulgarity of it, yeah, <laughs> was was refreshing. See, that's the thing. There's something about Vegas. The last thing I want to say, maybe, is Vegas is known as a place that's fake, right? And that's what I even said. But there's something oddly honest about a place where money is just money and a show like absinthe 
that is entirely around like a no holds bar, say whatever you want, and you thinking the worst things and articulating them <laughs> is so refreshing and so much fun. And uh, we just had a hell of a time, Luke. So thank you so much for that recommendation. Wait, glad you enjoyed it. I figured it was up your street. Yeah. It's kind of fingers crossed that you didn't have a sensitive wife. Sounds like she enjoyed it too, hopefully. Maybe looking at some people's faces, maybe they were like, oh my God, what did, <laughs> what are we witnessing? Yeah. <laughs> Part but, of the you know, <laughs> Right, live and learn, right? Have you had some Vegas experiences that are memorable and, you know... We had, a, had an incredible free trip to Vegas once, about a decade ago, uh, but for sort of bad reasons. One of my best friends, we were snowboarding in Jackson Hole for uh, a fortnight, and he had pretty bad accident. Um, and we laugh about it now, he's fully recovered, but uh, it, was quite, it was quite severe at the time. Mm. Uh, we just got... It's a, it's a pretty wild mountain, and we got a little complacent. Uh, in the backcountry, an area we thought we knew pretty well, and then something went a bit sideways. So he broke 10 ribs and punctured his lung. So he was grounded for a month. Um, so the other guys flew back to England. He was in Australia, I'm in the UK. And so I just ah, hang out with him for a month. And I'm like, well, what are we going to do? Like, he was, he was the walking wounded. So we checked out a map, and we're like, well, like his return flight is out of LA. So I'm like, well, why don't we road trip to LA? Oh, and by the way... Uh, Vegas is on that route. Let's go to Vegas for a month. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we did that. We called one of our best friends in Hong Kong, and we're like, "We're going to be in Vegas tomorrow. You fancy it?" And he flew out and joined us. And then we all three of us kind of crammed into two hotel rooms. Shen's insurance paid for almost everything. Uh, I was his carer, mm-hmm. so they covered all of his and my costs. So we basically paid like a third each. And we had an awesome like month in Vegas, and then a couple of weeks on Venice Beach in LA kind of chilling out, going to see some UFC shows, playing a hell of a lot of poker, um, all at Chen's insurance company's dime. That was pretty cool. Awesome. What's your favorite poker room? The Aria is a nice room, um, but like there's a kind of low-end room all along the strip. When you're playing, you're sort of almost open to the, the open air, and it's just kind of a, a much more drunken, wilder game. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, the money gets thrown around and it's a kind of, it's a much softer game, which is, uh, you know, I, my style prospers in kind of a weaker game where people want to have fun and they want to chat to the half-drunk Brit. Um, and then my <laughs> okay. game kind of comes to life. It's going pretty well in Tahoe, actually. The, uh, I'm, I'm definitely on track to cover my ski season costs in the local poker game. So I need to put some more volume in, actually, my kind of, my hourly rate here, because I do track quite a lot of stats, as you probably imagine. My hourly rate's about $80 an hour. So I just need to put the volume in and I'll cover my season costs. Quit sleeping in and uh, get to work, buddy. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the win. Yeah. And uh, I sent you uh, uh, some uh, future tournaments going on for February, okay. April. <laughs> I think I'm here. I'm enjoying I'm enjoying season. If you want to come down and play in the local game, though, come on over. All right. All right. <laughs> we should talk some investing topics, right? This isn't the... Uh, Pocus podcast. Right. Should we talk about being a customer of the companies you invest in? I was reflecting on this the other day because I was just interviewed by the Chit Chat Money podcast, Brett and Ryan, friends of the show, and we were chatting about a company that I'm a customer of called Wise, mm-hmm. um, kind of a UK fintech. And I won't say too much about the company, like go listen to the Chit Chat Money episode. We get into quite a lot of detail about it. But I found this company because um, I needed to set up international banking to get paid by Seven Investing. 
And it was just far and away the most convenient, cheapest, fastest way of me receiving US dollars, being able to hold those US dollars or turn them into sterling if I wanted to or other currencies and just essentially have the equivalent of a US bank account. It's a really, really clever facility and very, very cheap. Like you're basically almost getting foreign exchange at like the mid rate. There's, there's no spread and you pay a really small fee. Um, so I loved it for the business banking. I thought, oh, this is great. I got myself like a personal debit card with them as well. So I do all my personal bank, like international banking with them too now. And I'm like, this is just actually an incredible company. So I started digging into like the, the UK equivalent of their 10K and uh, kind of understanding them as an investment. And actually, I think an incredible investment. So again, go listen to my thesis on chit chat money. Um, but it did make me reflect on like the number of companies in my portfolio where I am a customer of them. And there's no better way of really understanding like a company's mission and how customer friendly it is, maybe what the drawbacks are. You know, maybe maybe they've got like an incredible back end service, but actually it's just like kind of horrible to use and the, the app is in t- is terrible, stuff like that. You know, you get like a real kind of gritty feel of what this this organization's like. Um, so I kind of highly endorse that as a way of understanding your own investments. Is, is there anything in your portfolio where you're a customer too? Yeah, very much so. This is, we're talking about the, the Peter Lynch style of investing. I think this is how many beginners start. At least it's, I, I recall as one of my entry points into this world where the, the idea is invest in what you know. And it's, I think all of the greatest gains in my investing career have come from this principle. And I'll, I'll name the big ones, Apple as an Apple fanatic, Tesla and Chipotle. Three products, love the story, love the, loved everything about it, but that I was experiencing firsthand. And I think for me, Luke, what makes being an owner investor so worthwhile is that when the stock price does whatever insane things it does, you can just return to that firsthand experience that allows you, I think, to settle into the the material reality. It helps ground your, your perspective. Like, is Tesla, is this car really that good? Oh, yes, it is. I agree. And actually, a a sort of counter anecdote as well. Um, I invested in a company called Stitch Fix many years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. If you haven't heard of it, basically, you order kind of clothes and you get like a box that would arrive once a month or once a quarter, whatever cadence you wanted. And the AI would put six things in the box for you. You keep what you you like and you send back what you don't like. And then the thing kind of learns and you can give like feedback online. And it's kind of AI supported by humans like stylists or something and then the idea is like and your whole wardrobe's managed for you so i like the idea i thought it's quite smart um and invested and then they rolled out in the uk and i became uh, like a subscriber and I, it just didn't work for me um like i but but the thing that made me realize actually the model just didn't work was um like i got one or two items i kept a couple of things i got one or two things though where like i wanted like a pair of trousers and there was something about the style I didn't like, and I gave really specific feedback, like three boxes in a row. And they kept sending me the thing that I was specifically saying, like, don't send me this. So I was like, this model just doesn't work. And it's not learning. Even the stylist, the human isn't getting it. So I closed my account 
and I sold my stock. And I'm kind of glad I did. I don't know if it's anything to do with that, but like the company has bombed. The CEO left, and it's down like 90x percent or something. But yeah, you know, you can learn good and bad about a company by being the customer. Maybe the the extra ingredient I would add is that exposure is not the quality I'm merely looking for. I'm looking for a kind of passion for the products. If I could find passion in the products that I use, that's the thing that steers my ship. If there's no passion, that's fine because that's a deeper understanding anyway, but that may or may not work out. Let's pick up our next topic. I'm, this is a mysterious one. I'm checking out our monday.com dashboard and you just got a question. Is this so? What's that about? I think I wanted to talk about this, Luke, because I find this, uh, it's a Zen parable and I'll, re- I'll read it because it's pretty short, but the way we could apply it as investors is potent, not just in our lives, but investors. So the story goes, the Zen master Hakuin was praised by his neighbors as one living a beautiful and pure life. A Japanese girl whose parents owned a food store lived near him. Suddenly, without any warning, her parents discovered she was with child. This made her parents very angry. She would not confess who the man was, but after much harassment, at last named Hakuin. In great anger, the parent went to the master. Is that so? was all he would say. After the child was born, it was brought to Hakuin. By this time, he had lost his reputation, which did not trouble him, but he took very good care of the child. He obtained milk from his neighbors and everything else he needed. A year later, the girl mother could stand it no longer. She told her parents the truth. The real father of the child was a young man who worked in the fish market. The mother and father of the girl at once went to Hakuin to ask forgiveness, to apologize at length, and to get the child back. Hakuin was willing. In yielding the child, all he said was, Is that so? I think... The reason I I wanted to talk about this is because in the investing world, there's obviously divergence of opinion. And many times we get into disagreements and we're humans and it's it's rarely a simple and uh, straightforward path, right? The typical reaction is to start defending oneself, right? I mean, anytime you get attacked, critiqued, it's human nature to start pushing back, fighting back. But of course, that creates a vicious cycle. The attacks just keep amplifying. And then I would say objectivity is lost, right? All of a sudden, you're now, the attacks become more personal and vicious, and it's just a mess, right? And this capacity to explicitly, deliberately remain in the state of mind that says, I don't know, or is it's kind of, it's not, I don't think it's just humility. I don't think this is, this is the case where you should be meek and merely apologize, right? And, and not hold your, your center. But think of, as investors, think of how much more we could learn from each other when, when we work with one another, even in the, the presence of a, of a strong counter opinion, instead of saying, immediately you're wrong or you're stupid or this and that you actually force yourself to say is that so inviting almost 
another question or a, a conversation. Is the main lesson here about uh, Hakuin's sort of stoicism in accepting the situation, or is it is it more a question, like you're saying, is that so, as an investing question to try and understand the counterpoint to your own maybe confirmation bias structure that might be in your own head? Yeah, I think it's a combination of those things, Luke. And stoicism here in this case, you know, just not to misunderstand that that view, that view, by taking in the child, by raising the child in the story, it wasn't like a, he wasn't merely passive, right? I just want to emphasize that. He actively did the thing that needed to be done on both ends of the spectrum, right? When he was blamed for something he didn't actually do, and then later for, you know, relinquishing the child after raising it. It's, it seems to me more like a quality of mind that is able to, in the stoic way, like you were saying, be with discomfort without itself getting agitated. And I think simultaneously staying open-minded to possible alternatives and possible views, knowing that things always change, right? So... I think when we see people get really stiff and rigid and maybe start going on the attack, it's wise to remember as investors, we don't always know the entire truth. Going on a counterattack will in the end be detrimental to everyone. To me, this doesn't feel like just hoity-toity moralistic stuff. I've seen this time and time and time again. Good, smart investors get their egos wounded and then they 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 create fractures, right? And then after that, they're probably, from my point of view, way worse because because they're now on the outside. Yeah, uh, I wholeheartedly buy that. And um, maybe if we just think about that within the seven investing service, like the power there is the Discord, which is still coming together. We've got over a thousand members now. You know, most of you are, if you're listening. Don't contribute to the conversation, like get stuck in, ask a question, um, uh, you know, pose a challenge to the advisors. But, but those of you, like there's a good 50 or 60 folk now who, do, who are commenting regularly, I get a tremendous amount of value out of, um, you know, being in those conversations. We've got some incredibly smart subscribers who add a lot of, uh, of their own knowledge and perspective and challenge. So that's, that's valuable. Mm. Extraordinarily valuable. Well, not to drift into kind of another advert spot, but I wonder if I could just quote from uh, a really nice comment we had on the Discord just a day or two ago. Um, one of our members said, it's a community trying to help each other to learn, educate, arouse curiosities and succeed. As in individual investors, we should be trying to help each other, fill in each other's gaps and act as propellants for one another. Anything less and we're no better than the leeches in the high towers view the world through the prism of a performance derby. I've been here since the beginning of the seven investing service. It is everything I want, need it to be. The level of interaction, engagement and input by the advisors is off the charts. Um, pretty, pretty heartwarming stuff to see that from one of our members. So uh, like I'm hoping, a, I'm hoping a bunch more folk feel similarly. I certainly do, to be honest. You know, even being part of the team, it's incredible being able to chat to just people who are so interested in these topics. Yeah, I took that uh, heartwarming indeed. I took that and I put it into chat GPT and I said, uh, improve on this 
on this uh, <laughs> this advert, and it said impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Sparks started front coming out of my my computer. So thank you so much for for that inspiring and motivating quote for us to keep doing this work on behalf of so many that seem to find genuine genuine value in our community. So um, so you're a bit of a reader, Christoph. What's on your reading list right now? So I wanted to let our community know that the next book I'm planning to read specifically for investing purposes is titled The End of the World is Just the Beginning by Peter Zehan, I believe is is his name, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. So haven't read it yet, but this one blurb on the back, I ha- in case you're interested in joining me reading this this month, is... Uh, makes me feel like this is the thing to read. Peter Zehan is the Nostradamus of the 21st century. Using geography as his analytical foundation, he's able to explain why nations behave the way they do today and predict with astounding accuracy how they'll behave tomorrow. Nowhere will you find a more objective and logical examination of geopolitical currents. A masterful blend of economics, demographics, environmental factors, cultural propellers, and real politic, Peter's books simplify the incredibly complex forces that drive states forward and back. The world is rapidly changing, especially America's role in it, and Peter navigates this journey with clarity, rigor, and wit. If your passion is politics, investing, energy, technology, international relations, or just being smart and interesting at parties, read Peter's book. And so I always want to be uh, smart and, <laughs> I mean, be, be not not be the dumb guy at the, at the party. So that's why I'm reading it. I, so I saw the book on your list. I didn't realize it was Zahan, So because I, I subscribed to his podcast oh. just like two weeks ago um, uh-huh. after seeing one of his videos. I think I put a link in, in Slack. I don't know if you, that's what you saw the guy. He's incredible, actually. I mean... If he's if he's right, he's, he has these like every day like a five or six minute YouTube and podcast. Like if he's right about the world, we are fucked. <laughs> it's really terrifying stuff, um, but he's really interesting and it's it's certainly credible the sort of arguments he puts forward. And and let me push back a little bit on that loop. Even if things go to hell in the handbasket, right? Because that's a real possibility. It is always possible to make really wise investments. The reason I think a book like this would be truly valuable is if you really understand where the winds are shifting to or away from, that's where you start sniffing, right? In these corners that not everyone else can foresee will be the next new thing. And that's the beauty maybe of the investing game, if you want to call it that. There's always opportunity. Humans, it's what we do, right? We we create things. We build things. And this feels to me, without having read it yet, exactly the kind of work needed to confront confirmation bias, right? Especially what you said. Like, if we have tremendous amount of fear, <laughs> right? If any of his, his uh, prognostications turn out to be true and it's bad and we have fear, good. That's how we know, right? We're 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 facing down our own beliefs. Yeah, I guess I mean, it certainly it's certainly super helpful to think about where the world might be going and all the different possibilities. You know, there's no 
binary thinking in this stuff. It's probabilities and likelihoods. Um, but if you buy into Zahan's view of where geopolitics is going to take us in the next couple of years, like sell your China stocks immediately. Are you saying you're going to read this with me? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to absorb this via the YouTube and the podcast. We you know only reason why is like I don't normally pull out books, but here's my reading list at the moment. Right, uh-huh. so this is okay, I put the poker book aside. That's that's, that's work. But, like you sent me these two to read, uh, and I've like I'm three chapters into the yellow one, uh, how finance works by uh, Mihir Desai. It's great, really good. I'm learning a ton mm-hmm. in this book. Um, but you've already queued up. Uh, expectations investing mm-hmm. by uh, Mabusan and Rappaport. So it's going to take me like a month to get through those two. So no, I can't join you on the Zayhan book too. All right, fair enough. No, the, those other investing books, yeah, they're they're so good. And hopefully, but, but, we could, by yeah. by far, right? The, the, the toughest read of those three is my poker book, Modern Poker Theory. Bloody hell, this <laughs> this is you blowing know, my mind. Yeah. Oh, is it? You know, it's actually, uh, <laughs> I was looking for it uh, yesterday, <laughs> but it turns out it's at the very bottom of my stack. And <laughs> it will require major reconstructive surgery uh, to, to get it out. But it's blowing your mind. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I can't, I can't imagine at this point, like a poker book, like blowing my mind. Like what? Like it's, it's blowing my mind in the sense that, uh, a bit like many topics, right? You think you understand something and then you suddenly realize there's a completely different perspective and you don't actually understand this topic at all. I've been playing poker for 30 years and I've gone through that epiphany maybe three or four times where my game has just jumped to the next level and I've suddenly realized actually the game isn't about this thing I thought it was about. It's actually about mm-hmm. this other thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe I've done that three or four times and I haven't had one of those epiphanies for a good 10 or 15 years this book has suddenly made me realized actually poker is about this other thing Mm -hmm. which i was aware of but i think i might have hit my limit i don't think i'm able i don't think i have the cognitive capacity if i'm completely honest to take my game to that next level which is why i'll probably always be like an 80 dollar an hour winning poker player as opposed to Oh, yeah. you know, an $8,000 an hour winning poker player. Yeah, all right. I got to pull out. I got to pull it out. It's probably quite telling that my biggest win so far was three nights ago, very drunk. Um, <laughs> but, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm sure you were at your maxed c- cognitive capacity in employing <laughs> all, right. all of that theory. There is one thing that I heard about this book that is a little disconcerting. And I, I it was one of, was it Liv? Um, what's her last name? Yeah, she might have said something that the way I understood it was that this is the actual limit uh, in terms of figuring it all out and that players can, with enough work, get there. But once you get there, there's no more. It's almost like uh, the fear of, of something you thought was infinite reaching a mechanical endpoint. Actually, so, so let, let me redescribe that a little bit because there is another aspect to it as well that I think Liv talked about when she was interviewed by Friedman. Um, so what this book takes you to is understanding how to play game theory optimal poker. Um, and so you're right, that is sort of a limit in the sense that if you're able to play perfectly, in inverted commas, um, like against any, any against any other perfect player, you'll be kind of break-even. Like you, you can't be exploited um, and uh, you'll never make a mistake and in the long term, you know, in the short term, 
anything can happen because of luck. But in the long term, you will prosper. Um, and AI is, is now there. Like There are bots that play game theory optimal poker. And this book tries to get you to the point that your intuition can approximate that. It's probably not possible for a human to be able to play perfectly. But there is a level beyond that because once you can play like a solid GTO game, um, game theory optimal game, the level beyond that is then diverging from that to exploit your opponents. So then the psychology does come back into the game, I think. Um, if your opponents are playing in a suboptimal way, in, then you can play in a counterbalancing suboptimal way that exploits their mistakes. Mm -hmm. But if they realize that, they may adjust to your adjustments. So it becomes like a leveling war again. So there still is this sort of human element of poker. Um, but you're right, there is, there is this sort of core now, which we have the theory of, and we have like AIs that can play. But, but, you could, but I think there's still room for human ingenuity. All right, yeah. Well, yeah, we've got a ways to go, right? I mean, this to master this level takes extraordinary I, I, I never, amount. Of, I never will. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, it's, it's beyond my capacity. I think I, I found my I found my game. I'm sticking with it. I think, but I'm still taking some interesting, you know, just reminders about how to play solid poker from this book. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Tell me, Luke, about the Google AI lawyer getting sued. Yeah, well, not Google, but uh, AI oh, lawyers. Hey. It's a so there's a um, there's a website called Do Not Pay. Uh, you might have heard of it. And it's like they used to help you fight like parking tickets and fines and stuff like that. They're, they're quite techy. It's like an East Coast US startup. Um, and it's all about, you know, fighting the man. Um, but they do have kind of AI in there and it helps you sort of put together like, you know, your complaint letter, things like that. I've used it in the past. It's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, the founder of Do Not Pay has created a AI lawyer. And so evidently, um, uh, evidently this, there was going to be a test case coming up in the next few months where a chap was going to defend himself and then he'd have like an earpiece and the AI lawyer would be feeding him legal arguments um, based on what, how the case was progressing to enable him to fight his own case. So I was just I was intrigued that um, unfortunately the, the founder has had to shut this program down because he's been threatened in multiple states uh, for being sued for practicing law without a license. And Oops. made me snigger a little bit because, uh, you know, this is kind of, I suppose, the ultimate example of, um, you know, people whose jobs are about to be displaced uh, kind of fighting back, you know, like the taxi drivers fighting back against the Ubers. Well, here now we've got the lawyers fighting back against the AI uh, lawyer. So quite interesting. I mean, I, personally, I do think this is probably going to be the direction of travel for law, along with, you know, most other white-collar jobs. Um, yeah, what do you reckon? Uh, what do I reckon, Luke? This is so much on my mind in the education space, so I could see exactly how this should be on the mind of lawyers and all white-collar workers. And I think that's maybe why the this AI moment feels so momentous because in previous eras we could see why the label blue collar right why something that's kind of more mechanizable how that would be replaced that kind of made sense from the beginning like human labor replaced by by a yeah. mechanical robot but things that we deem to be special 
or requiring many, many years of education for those things to now be clearly in the crosshairs makes me really take that next leap into into the the whole uh, question of work in general, you know, and um, uh, universal basic income. And what would humanity do if jobs were no longer really the point? I mean, this is this is exhibit A. I mean, things like this pr- probably are the future of work, right? There may be no practical work for us to do. We're just out kind of doing dumb stuff to uh, keep ourselves entertained. Or if you want to be maybe a little bit more hoity-toity about it, instead of, say, say dumb stuff, we could uh, potentially all be artists of a certain kind, right? Meaning aestheticians, <laughs> right? Where it's not just kitsch that we're responsible for left to our own devices what could we create that could have beauty and value but not necessarily pragmatic value mid-journey and dali too right they're producing some pretty beautiful works of art winning competitions yeah so there's uh, i i enjoy thinking about a world where work is not the point yeah like if we if it's probably a big statement there's like eight billion of us now but if we all had the opportunity to do whatever the thing we were passionate about was and to explore those passions and you're not limited by um you know availability of money or energy and other constraining factors then as long as we're not out there kind of enjoying murdering each other right then uh you know maybe that's utopian or maybe it's hell you know maybe that's the pointlessness of existence because suddenly you don't have to struggle it's it's fascinating to think that people several centuries or maybe millennia in front of us will look at at the t- you know this is still the dark ages where humans had to work kind of mentality anything's possible yeah. speaking of ai quick quick thing about a fun toy i found google is working on its own music uh generation ai thing and this one is not publicly available yet but this one all you, this one allows you to spell out using using human words and descriptors what you want your thing to sound like. Basically, Chat GPT, and it creates a tune. And the ones I listen to are just so good. Check out this descriptor: a fusion of reggaeton and electronic dance music with a spacey, otherworldly sound induces the experience of being lost in space. And the music would be designed to evoke a sense of wonder and awe while being danceable. Right, that's the descriptor. And what came out the other end was just so banging. <laughs> it's it's like, cool. oh my God. <laughs> so hopefully, yeah, it's a 30 second clip. You could see what, what it sounds like. Uh, I'll just I'll jam wild. that into the episode. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's cool. It'd be nice to be able to play with this tool. Yeah, wild. Just wild. I, I can't get enough of this stuff. Uh, and, and, for for our community members know that my eyes and ears continue to really be perked in in looking for what the next great investment that that might take advantage of this stuff might be but it's still early early days and if you listen so, to this right if you if you found your own cool ai tool then uh, tweet us and let us know we're always looking for fun stuff to play with that's right and and we're both on the twitters luke is at 7 luke hallard H-A-L-L-A-R-D, and I am Seven Flying Platypus. 
So please send us some DMs, questions. We'd love to interact with our listeners. Absolutely. Are we ready for the three questions? We are. The three conversations game. Should I just give a quick yeah. explanation again? This is episode 10. Maybe you're joining in for the first time. But uh, we close out every episode with the three conversations game. And I think this week, Christoph's going to pose three conversation topics to me. I'm going to cancel one of them. And then he's going to pick one of the remaining two. And I have to give him a minute of wisdom on that topic. And we don't prepare. We've got no idea what we're going to ask each other. So what have you got for me this week, yeah. buddy? All right. First question, Luke. A softball is you're a snowboarder and a motorcycler, correct? If you level up significantly in one of those but then only get to do that activity that one activity for the rest of your life but not the other what would you choose okay question two imagine you're young luke you're 18 and you got a hundred k as a kind of grant as a grant and you could either go to university with that hundred k so tuition paid or you could take that 100K and learn whatever you needed using, let's call it YouTube University, which, which let's include ChatGPT and its cousins. What would you pick? Which road would you pick? And I've got the, you know, the residual of the 100K that I saved on not spending on a university education in the second one, presumably. Yes, exactly. You, you, you would have up to 100K and yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And last question, think about a situation that was challenging and hard, right? And you gave the answer that you did. How would that situation have been different if instead of saying the thing you did, you would have said, is that so? (laughs) (laughs) So a pickle that you got yourself into given your, your typical fiery Luke answer, how would things have changed? Had you been a Zen master instead, <laughs> capable okay, of saying, just, is that so? Uh, well, okay. I mean, so um, despite living a full and rich life, uh, I haven't been accused of being a father by anybody just yet. So <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I, nothing springs to mind as a, uh, a good, is that so scenario to explore. So I guess I will nix that one, but I, it's a good question. I like you looping back to that earlier topic. Okay, so I want to hear about your your snowboarding, motorcycling. Uh, t- tell us more, yeah, and how you would think about making this decision. Okay, um, like I love both of these sports, and I think I'm probably more passionate about, I'm going to say like skiing and snowboarding as one thing, because I now do them both, and they were like a perfect, perfect counterpoint to the injuries, like I smashed my elbows probably can't mm. see the bruise yesterday on the snowboard so today i can ski and i'll give that a few days to heal um so would i but would i choose those and i'm certainly more passionate about those than motorcycling or would i choose motorcycling i think i might choose to be like a leveled up motorcyclist only because i kind of fear that um climate change is perhaps going to be erode my ability to do winter sports as well as like an aging mm. body right um so I've, I've i've now rearranged my life so i can do every ski season so i'm going to be like in a mountain somewhere for the first three months of hopefully every year until i can no longer do this stuff um but maybe it will become more elitist and like the whole of europe 
the whole season has been pretty screwed this year so far. Like they've had no snow. Um, so it would be expensive and more complex. And I probably can't rally like a bunch of friends to come and join me if it's just you know becoming a more a less accessible sport. Whereas motorcycling has a lot of practical utility all year round. Um, and like, so we've just planned Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia on the bikes. So heading out there in April. Um, and I've, it's, we're running into my wife's birthday. So I've invited her out and she's going to come and spend like a weekend and we'll be in like a nice part of Croatia for the weekend. But essentially it's a motorbike trip. Um, so it's a nice, it's a really, really nice way of seeing the world. Plus it's practical, like living in an urban city like London. Um, so if I could level up my motorcycling, motorcycling is pretty good. Like I used to be an instructor. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly competent on two wheels, mm. um, but it is a dangerous sport, no argument. Um, so if I could level up my motorcycling and then maybe just be, you know, perhaps as quick, but just a little bit safer, perhaps that's like the aspect of the leveling up I would take. And um, yeah, and that has a lot of practical utility, I think, in my life. Wow, Luke Hallard, the world's dullest man. <laughs> when snowboarding mountains uh, isn't isn't uh, satisfying enough, off to Croatia. Wow, cool. Thanks for answering. Cool. Thanks for the question. Very good. Alrighty, that's uh, so episode that, ten. Yeah. Got ten episodes in the bag now, dude. Wow, we're into we're into double digits. Amazing, right? Amazing how time flies. <laughs> I love doing these. It really makes me think in in the broadest terms in in trying to find out what's the most interesting stuff to to parse through. And you're such a great partner with whom to get some of these thoughts out there. For our listeners, I, I, I want to reiterate that we are so open to questions and future topics and controversies we don't want to make this soft right we want to make this a, a really good engaging and fiery worthwhile listen so if you have any suggestions ping us on the twitters or on the discord and we'll take it from there it's good stuff and you know one thing i learned today that i hadn't noticed before you always sit in a particular position and i had no idea there was like a rack of about 100 bottles of looks like whiskeys and bourbons behind you i'd never seen that before your head was always bumping it yeah <laughs> That's interesting. You're trying to be this erudite, well-read character, uh, but actually, there's, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a, a funny thing too is I haven't had a drop in forty days or so, oh, wow. so my willpower is actually quite extraordinary. <laughs> so, but whiskey goes goes in the morning coffee, you know, when the drinking days are on. Well, if I'm going up the mountain, right, my backpack has like a granola bar, yeah. uh, a, a hip flask full of. Uh, Bailey's, there's a bit of a softer cool. ball there, and then like the liquid lunch is like a, a hazy beer. So, yeah, that's how I run my day. It, gotta keep it warm in there on those cold <laughs> slopes. <laughs> All right, Luke, it's been a, a delight. Until next time. Cool beans, Christoph. And if uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, do us a favor and share it with a friend. Look forward to seeing you all in episode 11 in two weeks' time.